I'm Sarah Vine and this is Sarah Vine's Female Half Hour Male Plus. I'm joined this week in every week by my friend and co-host Imogen Edwards-Jones, who very annoyingly this week is in Ibiza. Imogen. Hello. Hello. <laughs> You're Hello. trying my patience here. I know I am. It's almost like sort of like, where's Wally? <laughs> where's Imogen? Which glamorous where's location is she in this week? Not do you know what will make you laugh quickly? Just, just as we, we went through customs, obviously, because uh, yeah. everyone's talking about travelling and everything. Did you have to prove went that you through... had £85 pounds in your bank? I didn't, but I had to prove. What was brilliant was they kept going, English this way, English this way, English this way. And we just went walking, walking, walking for miles. My son said to me, why are they sending us this way? And I said, because we're all fat and they're trying to make us work <laughs> off our lunch. Well, they weren't all English. sending you in some giant pit. Which is, which is... No, no, no. It was really weird. I think they were trying to uh, see if we had COVID by making us walk. Oh. I have no idea how were they, or why. Were they spraying you with disinfectant as you came through? They were sort of gunning people occasionally yes. with temperature guns, that sort of oh, thing. Oh, God. Can't English, this way. Yes, English. English, English. this way. Run yeah. fast. <laughs> <laughs> we'll poke you with our guns. Um, exactly. <laughs> God. Um, well, no, I, I'm on my last legs. I'm about to get on a ferry tomorrow and drive oh, my daughter gosh. and her boyfriend to France. Oh, Southwest my God, you're France. insane. I know, I know, I know. I was. I thought I was being awfully clever because I was going to fly to Toulouse mm. and I thought, no, 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 I'll drive and I'll do the ferry because that's nice and we can stop in Versailles because my daughter's never seen Versailles and I thought that would oh, be yes, a nice cul- cultural event. And, yes. uh, and so, no, but now I'm going to sit for six hours in a traffic jam in Dover, so that's lovely, yes. obviously. Oh, well, that'll um, be fun. But make sure you've done what you're supposed to do beforehand, oh God, your yes. special this... working out thing. <laughs> I saw this this morning. This is a brilliant story this morning. To start the day right, get out of bed at 7.12am and exercise for exactly 21 minutes. No. 21? 21 minutes, it says here. Mm. It says here, to feel chirpy rather than grumpy. Why would Mm. I want to feel chirpy rather than grumpy? I mean, surely the whole point of being in the the morning is to feel grumpy, right? It's your right as a human being to be grumpy in the morning. Spend 10 minutes in the shower and then take 18 minutes over breakfast. 18 minutes over breakfast. Can I, I just say something? These people clearly have never had a hangover. No. <laughs> and they don't have children. No. The idea that I could do 21 minutes of working out. No. 10 minutes in the shower is quite a long time. That is quite a long time. Yeah, that's my daughter's yeah. kind of length in the shower, which I consider to be yes. too long. Yeah. Yes, I'm not sure it's very eco. Anyway, it turns out this brilliant survey is actually sponsored by a breakfast cereal company uh, who make who makes something called Special K Crunchy Oat Granola. Anyway, could cut price dentistry cost you in the long run? We speak to the host of the BBC documentary that lifts the lid on the risks that come with seeking cosmetic treatments abroad. Plus, could the vintage dress in your wardrobe be worth a fortune? We're talking to the woman who found that the dress she inherited from her grandmother is both rare and valuable. But first, we're joined by the author who turned crime fighting into crime writing. Claire McIntosh spent more than a decade working for the police force, rising to the rank of operations inspector, which sounds awfully glamorous, before taking what she'd learned about real-life crime and using it to create best-selling novels. Her latest book is called Last Party, and she joins us now. Claire, hi. Hello. Hi. Thanks for having me. It's very exciting. Operations inspector, what does that mean? I mean, honestly, there's nothing glamorous about it at all, um, especially not when you're wearing a fire retardant boiler suit and a, and a helmet and trying to hold a, a shield the same height as your six foot male uh, colleagues. So what I did was, uh, along with lots of other people, organise the policing response to large scale public events. So protests, okay. demonstrations, you know, football 
riots, right. those sorts of things. Claire, isn't your husband, I seem to remember, a close protection officer? He was, yes. He's not anymore. He's now, um, we moved up to Wales from Oxfordshire about six years ago and he left then. Okay, where are you in Wales? We're in Snowdonia. It's so beautiful up there. Beautiful. I have Sarah, a- what Claire and I are saying is that I remember meeting Claire a thousand and one years ago, just when your first novel was being released. Do you remember? I yeah, so I was trying. Well, I was trying to remember when it was, and all I could remember is that I was still quite overwhelmed and a bit sort of starstruck by the whole thing. And actually, going to a really lovely, you know, fancy brunch or whatever it was we did felt a bit surreal. And you really kind of took me under your wing, and then we went shopping, which was lovely. <laughs> we did. All, we did. All problems can be resolved by a trip to Bister Village. Shopping. But also, Claire had just published. And I think it was number one. It was so exciting because you were you were really disorientated by the whole thing. And also neither of us had any money. We were both <laughs> completely flat broke. It was really funny, completely broke the pair of us. And we had these little vouchers. I've never seen two people spend a voucher so carefully in my life. <laughs> I know. Well, I, I remember feeling quite stressed about it because it had to be spent that day. That was the thing. Do you remember? You couldn't yes. take it away yes. and think about it. It was a one-time voucher and it was a fairly generous one. And you bought a bag. I did. I did. I bought a black and gold handbag. What did you buy, Claire? I bought something from the white company that I regretted that didn't oh. suit me. And... Um, <laughs> And I clung on to it for years. A, it sort of reminded me of a really fun day, but also because yes. it had been really expensive and it had been sort of a present from Bister Village. Yeah. And so, from yeah. Bister Village, it was very funny. So, Claire, tell me why you decided to stop crime fighting and start crime writing. I love that. Look, it wasn't really an active decision. I didn't sort of think one day as I was being pelted with bricks at the Kassam Stadium, actually, I think what I'm going to do is write about this instead. I left because of an appraisal at work. It's called a 360. It's where all your colleagues write down what you're like and then you get oh a report God, about that's you. Horrendous. And it's really oh my brutal. God, that sounds dreadful. I know, I know. It's it's like walking into the canteen naked. It's it's really awful. But this report came back and it was really good. You know, I don't want to be smug about it, but I'm going to be smug about it. It was really, yeah. really good. It talked about how I was really sort of energetic and creative and, and I always listened and I was positive and all these sort of good things. And I took it home and showed my husband and he said, yeah, yeah, this is amazing. Who's this woman? Um, <laughs> I don't know who she That's is. Hilarious. And it was a proper sort of defining moment in my life because I realized, and I'm not, I know I'm not alone in this. And a lot of women, I'm sure in particular who are listening will probably relate to this. I realized that I was using all the best bits of me for work and for my colleagues and then I would come home and my family would get the leftovers and I, uh, I yeah. you know I'm, I'm such a feminist and I do absolutely believe that women can have their big career and can have their family for me at that particular moment I was not doing that very well at all and so I decided to take a career break to just work out what I wanted get my priorities sorted actually spend some time with my children we'd had a terrible time one of our our children had died as a baby and I was so lucky to have these three surviving children and I never saw them so I took a career break but I needed uh, money and so writing was 
the thing I thought I could do from home. So I did some freelance feature writing, op-eds, yeah. that sort of thing, mm-hmm. and wrote I Let You Go. And I have had a tremendous amount of luck ever since. And how did you get I Let You Go published? This is a story that will annoy people because it, it feeds <laughs> it feeds into the who you know um, story. But I'm, I am mm, going to mm. justify it in a way that will make sense. So I was organising a literary festival. I didn't know anybody in publishing at all. And I was just thinking about starting to submit this book to agents to try and get representation. And while I was thinking about that and while I was finishing the novel, I was starting a literary festival in Chipping Norton because I'd left the police and I was feeling as you do when when you've been working sort of in a very pressured yeah. environment and you like that sort of thing. Mm. So I'd started a lit fest and I was meeting lots of people and a sponsor introduced me to someone who had a little black book of author names and this person had a friend who was an agent and when I spoke to her about this book she offered to send it to her agent and I know that's annoying for people who are perhaps sending (laughs) sending off their manuscript but what I would say is that you only get to know people if you actually make an effort to do that and I genuinely didn't know anyone also no agent publishes a rubbish book you know unless your book oh no of course they don't exactly I mean your contacts will get you through the door but if it's rubbish they won't publish it because they don't want to publish they will and actually an an, an agent you know everything that goes to an agency is read so it it's Mm. only a shortcut in the kind of the time I suppose but everything gets read and I think we writers sort of aspiring authors have a bit of um we get really shy about things mm. you know if people ask what we do we don't like to say we're well you know, writers, we want to be a writer. writers are introverts because you have to be an introvert mm. in order to write i mean i'm a real introvert i i like nothing more than just spending time with my you know tiny brain in my head <laughs> writing things down I, see, I, that's not that, that tiny happy. darling <laughs> I've only just you know come I mean. to, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I've, I've only just understood really what an introvert is because for my whole life I've thought I was an extrovert because I, mm. I really like people and I really like meeting people and introducing them and going to parties. And, and then someone said to me recently, but how do you feel after a big event? Are you energized and you want to go on to another event? And I said, no, 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 no. Mm. I, I, I no. need to crawl into a room and hide. Yeah. And yeah. they said, well, that's because you're an introvert. Introverts can appear very extrovert, but I always, I, I've always remember when I was a child because I used to climb the tree during break to get away from the other children. And I would sit... Did you? Yes. And, and I would... So I went to this very... Um, I was living... when It was when I was living in Italy and my parents sent me... One year, I think, they sent me to this American school, which was full of really, you know, enthusiastic Americans. And I was... I mean, horrified by this. So I would go during the break time. I and so well, they were all doing things like playing baseball and whatever it is that American children do. I would just climb the tree with a book and I would sit in it. And my mother got called in. <laughs> I said, "There's something wrong with Sarah. She doesn't want to play what with the is? other children. She just wants to sit in this tree and read her book." And my mother said, that's "My mother said, I think that's quite sensible, to be honest." <laughs> it's quite sensible do you still climb into a tree to read a book I would if I could climb a tree I'm a little bit uh, my knees are a bit dodgy these days but yes I do I mean metaphorically I climb into trees and read books I I mean I will go and take myself off to my bedroom with a book for a couple of hours and shut the door and you know if there was a stand of stair lift you'd be in the tree yeah (laughs) definitely 
Talking of parties, Claire, so tell us a bit about your book then, The Last Party. Oh, that's a good segue. Um, <laughs> the Last Party is a murder mystery which mm-hmm. is set in Snowdonia. This oh. is my lockdown book. Every writer has a lockdown book where we sort of cast around. And, and some people have gone really kind of, I've got to escape in my book. So I, I, they've gone really exotic. And I've just mm. basically written about where I live, although it's absolutely fictionalised. So it starts with a New Year's Day swim in Snowdonia when a body floats. This particular lake has the boundary between England and Wales runs right through the middle of the lake. And on the English side Ooh. is a is very, that the Northern Ireland Protocol, isn't it? It's very much like that. On <laughs> the English side is a kind of luxury resort of log cabins, kind of, mm-hmm. you know, Soho farmhouse, but on a lake in Snowdonia. And on the Welsh side is a very, very small, close-knit Welsh-speaking community. And mm-hmm. this body floats from the English side to the Welsh side. And so it kickstarts a cross-border investigation um, that's spearheaded by DC Fionn Morgan, who is my central character. And what I'm really excited about is it's the start of a series, which is a new thing for me. I mm. love a series with the same person. I, want, I don't know what yes, that's called. But... I can't find the words, but you know what I mean. I like that. That's very exciting. Fionn Morgan. So it sounds a bit like the bridge, Claire. Do you remember the bridge? It's yeah. I mean, I'm That's... just stealing things left, right, and centre. Really, <laughs> that's fine. But I like the idea of cooperation between two different forces. is always good fun. Is this the first of three then with Fionn Morgan? I don't know how many there will be. Um, okay. I guess you know if mm. people like it, it'll go on and on. If they don't, mm. I'll pretend I only ever intended to write two or three. Fionn just sort of walks onto the page. And the weird thing is that normally, so I write standalone thrillers normally, and the first thing that comes is the plot, is the, the sort of the concept, the premise. Whereas this was very different. This was the world. This was this cross-border investigation, this lake. And then Fionn. And Fionn is the first character I've ever written who says things that I didn't plan for her to say. And right, you know, Ooh, I've always yeah. heard writers talk about their characters taking over, and I've always prided thought it was a bit pretentious Mm. and then Fionn (laughs) arrived and she's just she's kind of funny and spiky and a bit um, I mean she's a nightmare to work with she actually I've just written I'm writing her second book at the moment and someone has just said to her that choosing the police career is a really odd choice for an introvert and she just says I'm not an introvert I just don't like people so that's her kind of take right. on life, she sounds, really. She's, she sounds a bit like me, actually. I, don't, I mean, I often say yes. I don't like people. <laughs> do you think she's basically you? I think she has a lot of me. I mean, she's a lot younger. She's only 30. Um, right. She is probably a bit like I was when I started in the police, maybe. She's got a bit of a chip on her shoulder. She's a bit prickly but fundamentally she's a good person and she absolutely joined the police for the right reason she's Mm. in this small town and she's got that small town feeling where you're desperate to leave but also you love it here it's sort of claustrophobic because everyone knows you and they all still treat you as though you're the same wild teenager you know that grew up there and so she's she's sort of caught in this odd situation and she works with Leo Brady, who is a detective from Cheshire, and he is sort of polar opposite to Fionn. He's not at all impetuous. He would always think things through. He's really mm. sort of staid and sensible um, and also a bit hot. Oh, God, how exciting. Um, Who's he plays them in the series? Is there a series? 
Well, there will be. This is very exciting. We've literally just announced this, that it's been optioned for screen. So we're just going into development at the moment. We've just chosen a fantastic Welsh writer Mm -hmm. and we'll be, yeah, looking at casting. And I'm awful at that sort of thing because I can never remember anyone's name. I just sort of go, oh, you know, Thingy, who was in that thing with the police. (laughs) Does your career in the police help you with all the uh, procedural stuff in your in your books and how annoying is it when you read somebody else's book and they've got stuff wrong so I used to be really annoyed by it to the point where I couldn't read it so when I was in the police I would only read American crime on the basis that it could all be wrong but I wouldn't know about it but actually the older I get and the more distance I suppose I have between me and the police the less bothered I am for me it's about authenticity not accuracy so it needs Mm, to mm. I need to believe that it's real it doesn't actually have to be real and that is in the skill of writing and in the atmosphere that you create and in the characterization so that your character can kind of do anything in police and as long as you believe in them you'll you'll go with it but I actually with this one I suppose because I've been out of the police for a number of years now, I wanted to run it by actual police officers. So I put together a group of former colleagues, lots of different Mm. ranks, and we were all in our respective homes. It was all during the pandemic, drinking wine, and I was feeding them bits of investigation in our chat group and they were throwing lines of inquiry at me and that was quite good because it sort of reminded me of bits that I actually I'd forgotten that we would do as a matter of course in the police but mostly the way my career helped me is is just in people it's it's in that it's a Mm. bit like journalism it's that exposure to people from totally different worlds than your own so you're not just living in this bubble that you know we grew up in do you miss the police? I mean, you know, do you miss being part of the force? Because the police have had a terrible time recently, haven't they? I mean, they've had some awful mistakes and, you know, mess ups and stuff. I mean, do you look at it yeah, and think, oh. I mean, yeah, the, the, police, the police have had a terrible time. There are a lot of members of the public that have had a pretty terrible time as, as well as, as, as a result of, of that. Do I miss it? I miss making a difference is the honest answer. You know, the camaraderie yeah, is great, but I kind of have that with the writer community what Mm. I miss is that feeling that however hard your day is you've made a difference to somebody's life and as I got Mm. promoted and as I sort of looked ahead at where I planned and hoped to get promoted that difference that I intended to make would have had you know a bigger and bigger ripple effect and I miss that and I, I struggle with it because fundamentally what I do is provide entertainment and that's sort of that's a big difference from being a, a police officer. Do you feel a bit guilty for stepping away from it? Because it seems to me that you're the sort of policeman yeah. that we should all have. And if mm. and if you're not in it, then that's one less nice policeman. You're very kind to say that. I um yeah, I do <laughs> I, I felt very guilty in the pandemic when my frontline colleagues were run ragged. And I, yeah, I, I, do, I do feel guilty. And, and there have been times over the last 10 years where I've looked at direct entry and thought, well, I could just go back. I could just go back as a superintendent or I don't know if they'd have me now. But anyway, I have felt guilty. But do you know what? I look at my former colleagues who, when I left, were PCs and sergeants and are now inspectors and superintendents. And I think you are the people. And I'm really thinking of female officers. Mm. You are the people who are going to make the police 
better and stronger. All these women who are growing up now, not the women who had to behave like men to get on, not those women, but the women in their 30s and 40s. Those are the women that are going to make the police great. Yes, of course. And and they'll change the culture, hopefully, finally from within. I wanted to ask you a question about the book, which is that, I mean, you said earlier on that normally the plot is what comes first. So is it different writing a character-driven book to writing a plot-driven book? And if so, how? Yes, I think it is different. And actually, I've just had to throw away the second book and start again because I think I'd fallen into the trap of making it so character-led that actually the plot had then become secondary and you know you can't have that so the the two things do have to have equal status I think I'm finding it challenging because I've painted myself into a few corners you know I keep thinking oh well I'll I'll have them go to to such and such a town and then realizing that I've already said there's nothing around for you know 45 minutes and so actually how are they just going to pop there and pop back so there are lots of logistical things that that are making a series that's so annoying that isn't it it's really Mm. really annoying and I wish I'd thought a bit more about writing a series but because I hadn't planned to write a series it just sort of happened I'm just where do you think that you're going to do for Snowdonia what Morse did for Oxfordshire that's the question oh good question Sarah I mean wouldn't that wouldn't that be lovely well, I mean, it would be lovely, but can I buy a house there before the property prices go through the roof? <laughs> <laughs> and does she drive a special car or anything like that? Does she have any quirks? Because I always think she it's a nice does, actually. She, yeah, she drives a Triumph Stag. Perfect. See? I, oh, I love those. I just, Clever you. Brilliant. They're good, aren't they? Yeah, she drives a brown, a sort of rusty brown Triumph Stag. I mean, it's not particularly attractive. It's just a, an old banger, but she loves it. Very good. Well, Claire, I think that's all we have time for, sadly. I'm going to go yes, and read the book. Thank you. I'm on holiday next yes. week, so I'm going to take it with me. Yes, do. The last party. The last Sounds party. Sounds amazing. Well, Thanks, enjoy Claire. and enjoy your holiday. And thank you so much for having me. That was Claire McIntosh, whose latest book, The Last Party, is released on August the 4th. Brits are travelling abroad for cosmetic surgery. But for those who are lured in by the low prices, what happens if it all goes wrong? We are joined by the host of the BBC documentary that lifts the lid on what could happen if you choose to have turkey teeth. Trishala Nakani is a dentist and host of Mm. BBC's Turkey Teeth and she joins us now to talk about this problem. So, Trishala, thank you very much for taking the time out. I can't wait to see your documentary. I haven't watched it yet. Is it on iPlayer? It is on BBC iPlayer. So make Mm. sure you watch it and I can't wait to hear what you think. (laughs) Well, the thing is, I don't have turkey teeth. I have the worst kind of English teeth, unfortunately. Um, But I can totally see the temptation for people to go and get sort of slightly cheaper dentistry abroad. And there was a time, I think, when people were going to Hungary as well, weren't they? Yeah, and Bulgaria as well. And Bulgaria and places like that. And of course, the problem over here is that it's very hard to, well, it's almost impossible to get an NHS dental appointment. And if you do go to a private dentist, it's eye-wateringly expensive expensive, I mean hugely hugely expensive I mean really I think people couldn't afford it so tell us what the situation is and what did you find in your investigation so you're completely right people are going all over the world it's not just Turkey the Hungary is popular one Bulgaria is also very very popular but the reason we chose turkey teeth in particular firstly if you type in turkey teeth on TikTok over 100 million views 
and hashtags what? of turkey teeth. Isn't that wow. insane? Wow. <laughs> yes. 100 million, right? More than 100 yeah. million. So we know wow. that Turkey in particular is such a growing market. But of course, mm-hmm. people are going all over the world, whether it's Dubai, India, mm-hmm. dental tourism is not just Turkey. And that's one mm-hmm. thing I think we need to reiterate. It's not just Turkey, but it's mm-hmm. we chose Turkey teeth because of the huge impact it was having on social media. Mm-hmm. And yeah. you're completely right. It's so attractive. If somebody can't afford the cosmetic treatment here and then they look online or they research into going abroad and they see wow, this is a quarter of the price. It's a luxury holiday. Flights are included. Transport Mm. to and from the airport is included. You know, we visit the dentist at the beginning and at the end. And then during the week, we spend it with a cocktail by the pool. Mm. It's going to look amazing. And it's so, so attractive, right? Are there actual companies, travel companies, that are doing packages for this then? Absolutely. So in the documentary... We did an experiment where we sent pictures of my teeth to 150 dental clinics in Turkey, yeah. as well as 50 here in the UK. And a lot of them did come back to us with, you know, flights included, transport included. Wow. You know, it was like a, you know, it's like an all-inclusive, but all-inclusive yeah. with your teeth. Can I ask two questions? Is it the case that they're just travelling for cosmetic stuff or are they actually getting stuff that they can't get done here much cheaper? So like root canals, bridges, you know, kind of basic kind of dental work that here would cost, you know, 10 grand, but there is going to cost three grand. And the Mm. second question is, are Turkish dentists rubbish or are they actually perfectly good? It's just that if you have that kind of work done abroad and something goes wrong, then it's a nightmare. So people do travel abroad for kind of, Cosmetic procedures, such as the crowns, mm. the veneers, but mm. there's also a huge market of just going for maintenance and yeah. regular healthcare. And one thing yeah. that I found speaking to a lot of patients who do go abroad is a lot of the time they say, right, we go to Spain every so-and-so, we go to Turkey every so-and-so, mm. every six months, every year. While I'm there, I just get a full kind of full checkup and if I need treatment done, mm. I get it done there because it's a lot cheaper. I have friends who do that in Ibiza, actually. That's their dentist instead of doing it in the UK costs much less yeah exactly it costs a lot less and if they're there they're just like why not you know Mm. but secondly are all turkish dentists bad absolutely not Mm. we have some of the world's best 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 dentists in turkey Mm. my concerns as a dentist and my issue is not necessarily with turkish dentists it's just with any dentist whether you're in the uk whether you're abroad don't care where you are but if you're a not giving patients all the treatment options, B, mm. not doing a thorough investigation, a thorough mm. history and a thorough examination before mm. giving treatment plans and not suggesting any aftercare. Mm. Those are my issues. It's not yeah. with Turkish dentists mm. at all. It's just when patients don't know all the information, that's what really mm. yeah. gets to me. And also those shark's teeth are terrifying. There's shark's teeth that they do. With their, there's the ones when they literally, they grind them to little tiny pegs. I mean, I... That must be so painful and so weird. Also, you don't need to do that now because you can just have composite veneers, can't you? You just have the little thin ones that go on top of your teeth. I mean, my daughter had her teeth done a couple of years ago and she's mm. literally just got very... I mean, her own teeth haven't been touched at all. They've just put something on top. Oh, really? They've just stuck them on? Was it composite bonding she might have had yes, done? Yes, that's it. Yeah. 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 Because yeah. composite bonding essentially involves just adding to the tooth. Yeah. And honestly, in this day and age, we have such such amazing procedures where we touch minimal or no Mm. healthy tissue so a lot Mm. of the time it's reversible but the problem with crowns is once you've taken away kind of 60 to 70 percent of healthy tooth tissue there's no going 
Yeah, but I mean, a crown is to, is really to replace a tooth that's you know messed up, isn't it? I mean, you but shouldn't people just have, have it them on all a healthy done, tooth. Like sharks, Sarah. You shouldn't like have it on a healthy tooth. I mean, in Ooh. the olden days, obviously, in the olden days, people used to have all their teeth taken out before they got married, didn't they, and replaced with wooden dentures? Yeah, they did. They really did. So when honestly, <laughs> no, did. I have. I've spoken to patients before when they say, oh, their grandparents, for example, or I've spoken to even kind of elderly people. They said for their wedding presents, they used to have a full mouth of extraction. Yeah. You'd oh have my all of, so, God. so the, it was a wedding present. It was considered a, a dowry to have the bride, oh. all the bride's teeth removed and replaced oh. with wooden teeth, so that she didn't get it. You know, so that she didn't get sick from. I mean, the thing about having tooth decay is that it's really bad for the rest of your body. It affects you. It doesn't just affect your mouth. It affects your overall health. Isn't that right, Trishala? It does. It does, and it becomes systemic. It has an effect on heart disease. It has an effect mm. on diabetes. People just don't realise that. I think because the bacteria think, that lives in your cavities is the same kind of bacteria that can attack the lining around the heart is that right exactly and so i'm really surprised you know that because (laughs) dental care is not and it's not the public or the public's fault that they don't know that because if i Mm. wasn't a dentist i definitely wouldn't know that i mean i think it sounds to me that the problem here is not so much turkish dentists it's more our own failings over here with people being able to access affordable dental care yeah. So I think a huge, huge part of it is the cost. And that's why I say I'm not the type of dentist and no dentist should be like this. But obviously, after speaking to Tilly in our documentary, she said she felt very judged by her dentist. No mm. dentist should judge a patient for making decisions. Let me just put mm. that out there. If somebody chooses to go to Turkey, that's their, it's only their own body, it's their own mouth. They can do mm. exactly what they like. Mm. And after speaking to Tilly in the documentary, she did say she thinks dentists should be more sympathetic to the fact that we, they just can't afford it here. No. And it, it, no, I mean, some I mean, people just can't. Well, I mean, I've got a friend who, you know, is my age and she's, this is the kind of age when your teeth sort of go. I remember my dentist saying to me years ago, the problem with people's teeth is that their humans were really only meant to survive until the age of about 50 or 60. And so basically when you get to about 50, your teeth are sort of done, really. <laughs> they, they, have, they, they haven't caught up with the fact that we now all live until the age of 90. And, you know, I've got a friend who's got a terrible problem with one of her teeth and she needs a root canal. She just can't afford it. It's, you know, know it's 560 pounds or something and you know for people now with a cost of living crisis that's a lot of money you know that is a lot of money that's not cosmetic care that's basic care that's stuff that she needs to have done so that she doesn't get sick so as private health care and private dentistry i can completely appreciate that some patients just can't afford that mm. and we do provide the nhs is there to provide treatment to maintain and treat Mm. patients kind of all health until they're at a stable point so we do have the nhs in this country which is excellent but of Mm. course when it comes to private dentistry i can completely see why somebody Mm. would find that incredibly expensive and they look Mm. like i say when they're being sold a holiday you know a luxury holiday Mm. you know included and the quarter of the price it's going to look attractive yeah Absolutely. Well, thank you, Trishala. We shall all flock to the iPlayer to watch it. Turkey teeth, bargain smiles or big mistake? Exactly. And it literally is that bargain smiles or big mistake you decide. Brilliant. That was Trishala Lakhani, a dentist and host of BBC's Turkey Teeth. We all have a prized outfit saved for special events, but there are few of us who are able to boast of a garment as spectacular as the one Adeline Vining inherited from her grandmother, an original piece of Dior Couture, which when shown to the world became an internet sensation. 
Adeline joins us now. Adeline, I loved this piece. It was in the Daily Mail this week and there was a fantastic picture of you in this dual dress. And I just loved the dress, which was sort of bonkers as well, but also incredibly beautiful and clearly very, very beautifully made. So tell us a little bit about what happened and how you came to have it. And also, by the way, how amazing that it fits, because I don't think anything mm. that... Well, my, yes, I was about to yeah, say that. <laughs> I, I mean, literally, any, nothing my grandmother wore would ever fit me. Yeah, so, goodness. you know, good for you. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's all, that's always been a bit of a shock, to be honest. Um, yeah, so the, the dress belonged to my grandmother, and nobody had ever really seen it before that's still alive. She died in 1956. And when my grandfather died in 1995... Um, you know, while my family were going through the will and going through the house, there was this sort of attic in an open barn that he has at his house. And there was a load of suitcases up there, which everyone had always seen and presumed to be empty. But in one of the suitcases was this dress. And my mum saw it. I've got hundreds of cousins, uh, distant, you know, mm. firsts and seconds and things like that. But actually, of my 26 immediate cousins, there's only three girls, two of whom were much older than me. And so my mum said, I'll take that for Adeline when she's a bit older. So I was 11 when he died. So she Mm. took it. um, I can't remember quite when she gave it to me, but I must have been about 15 or 16. And I've had it ever since, but never really known anything about it. I mean, it's amazing that it survived that long in the attic. Was it sort Mm. of properly wrapped or anything? I mean, and tell us about the dress. It was from a couture show, wasn't it? Yeah, so I've only just found out all of this information, honestly. But yeah, how it survived and hasn't been nibbled by mice or attacked by moths, I've got no idea because it was literally just in a suitcase in an open loft. So, you know, we had swallows nesting in there and things like that. So, yeah, it's a miracle, really. The dress is from Dior's 1949-1950 collection, which, Mm, as I've just found out, was quite an important collection of his because it was a, you know, a turn of the mid-century collection and was all about change and innovation. And it was just two years after he'd started his collection and and created the new look, which sort of transformed women's fashion at the time. Yeah, it was the sort Um, of start of the new extravagance after the war, wasn't it? It was the sort of... Because the dress is... I mean, for listeners who haven't seen the piece, although you can look at it on Mail Plus, it is a full skirt, isn't it? It's a black velvet bodice, by the looks of it, with a huge full skirt, lots of volume. And a tiny waist, Mm. is it? A tiny waist? It is a tiny waist, yeah. Mm. Um, I, yeah, that's the hardest bit of the zip to do up, I will be honest. Um, I bet. <laughs> <laughs> so the actual, the fabric of the dress is, is actually quite interesting because the bodice and the skirt, the handkerchief hem, which is a square skirt, mm. um, is silk velvet. And the lining and what creates the volume under the skirt is taffeta, which, you know, someone would have thought a dual couture would have been a silk tulle or some really nice tulle. But what I found out when I took it to get valued and to get authenticated was that the fashion industry was still struggling to get hold of nice fabrics at the time. There was Mm. still so much going on after the war. And even luxuries were incredibly luxurious and couldn't be completely luxurious. Mm. And so there's this sort of cheap taffeta lining underneath, which, you know, is not what someone would have expected, apparently, at the time or, or in reflection. Maybe that's why it survived because it's mostly matte. Yeah, probably. Yes. Because it's not lovely silk. It is, in fact, you know, polyester. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, maybe that um, but, played but, to your advantage. You know, and that has played to my advantage in as much as there is some slight damage to the dress from, you know, wear and tear. But all of that damage is done to the taffeta and nothing is done to the, the velvet itself. Um, and they're saying, had there been damage to the velvet, the dress wouldn't be worth what it's worth today. 
And why did your grandmother buy it? I mean, was she fabulously rich French lady or something? <laughs> well, I mean, honestly, that bit, that bit of the story, I don't really know. I mean, my family's just been my family and, you know, we've never had any money, but I suppose there must have been some in the family at some time, certainly on her side of the family. My grandfather was posted, he was in politics, um, in foreign yeah. politics, and he was posted to be cultural attaché in Syria in 1947. And they bought it for there. Um, so I think he, he was posted out there in 47 and my grandmother moved out a bit later. So, and she bought it for um, parties and stuff. I mean, there's a wonderful yeah. picture of her in the paper sort of dancing away with some fabulously sort Unknown of louche-looking gentleman, yes. <laughs> yeah. I hope you've yeah. got the cost per wear down it's a, there. That's quite, my only worry. It all feels quite <laughs> Casablanca, doesn't it? It all feels quite sort of, you know... 1940s Hollywood. It's all quite brilliant. I mean, I don't have any dresses that belong to my grandmother, sadly. And all of my mother's dresses, I mean, I couldn't possibly wear them. What about you, Imogen? Have you got some things in your attic? I've got quite a few. I've got some yeah. old Bieber. Have quite you? Quite a lot of Bieber from, from my your mother. mother. Yes. Yeah. Oh, that's quite She exciting. was very glamorous in those yeah. days. But I haven't really. But the Bieber stuff is all tiny because yeah. she was tiny. I think we're all so much bigger. Yeah. That's why it's amazing, Adeline, that you can fit, actually fit into the dress, which is amazing. What a treat. Yeah, I know. And what's really interesting is that when we took it to the um, auction house and they'd... Because at the time we hadn't found a photo of my grandmother wearing it and we didn't know yeah. if she had worn it. And the auction house said to me, oh, she definitely has worn it. And they could, you know, could tell from the wear and tear. And she's, her words were, she definitely mm. has worn it and she's had a great time in it. And the way <laughs> she could tell was that it, apart from the what, what apparently obvious marks of being trodden on whilst dancing yeah. was the fact that she'd actually taken it in herself. So oh. the fact that she's taken it in and that still fits me is unbelievable. You know, Amazing. It's extraordinary. It hasn't got cigarette burns in it or anything, has it? Has it got, no, it's got <laughs> no, no cigarette burns or dodgy stains. No, no, and exactly. There's no, and every picture we've seen of her in it, because we've found a couple more since, she's holding a cigarette. So, yeah. Yes. She was a careful lady. <laughs> well, it sounds fantastic. It sounds, it sounds fantastic. And people should go and look at the piece. It's brilliant. Are you going to sell it? What are you going to do with it? You're going to keep it for your kids? I mean, I've been keeping hold of it all this time in the hope that I'd get invited to a swanky party. And oh, so maybe now you will. foolish to get rid of it now. Maybe what <laughs> you should do is to rent it out to those very glamorous celebrities, because now everybody wears vintage on the red carpet, don't they? Mm. And so you could, you could yeah. sort of rent it you out could to, to Nicole. The yeah, you could rent it out to Nicole Kidman yeah. or something like that. I'm sure she'd be able mm. to squeeze herself into it. I'd love to, but I have been told that I should never wear it. Oh, okay. Well, that's no fun, is it? It could have its own website. No, no I know. Um, yes, well, anyway, thank you so much. Very good to speak to you. Thanks very much to Adeline Vining for joining us today. If you'd like to see Adeline wearing her dress, which is really amazing, search at Adeline Vining on TikTok or look up the female pages on the Daily Mail website. If you enjoy listening to The Half Hour, why not visit mailplus.co.uk slash subscribe to get access to all our podcasts, videos, opinion pieces and more. And if you want to get in touch, tweet us at mailplus, me at Westminster Wag or Imogen at Imogen EJ. You have been listening to The Female Half Hour with me, Sarah Vine and Imogen Edwards-Jones. Thank you for listening. Listener.